The sermon text this morning is Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Growing up in a world of athletics and also just in the Bible Belt, I was surrounded for much of my life with a lot of people had popular Bible verses tattooed on them or written on the bill of their hat. And I don't have a problem inherently with trying to fill your mind and your thoughts with Scripture. The trouble is very often those things are taken wildly out of their context and tend to lose the force that the Scriptures are meaning to give them. Well, two of the, the biggest uh, culprits, the two biggest verses that are taken out of context come from Psalm 46. Uh, I was talking with Sarah yesterday, and we, we were kind of agreeing that Hobby Lobby's biggest moneymaker might be be still and no. And see, I, I don't have a problem with Hobby Lobby putting that on a throw pillow or on a doorpost or something like that. It's, it's good to fill our minds with Scripture. The trouble is with not knowing the rest of the verse or the rest of the psalm or the context of what that verse is communicating. See, I don't want to be unbalanced. They are inspired words from Scripture, but when we pull them out of the context, they turn into nothing more than a simplistic cliche. And a cliche is not what we need when troubles come. When we need God's help, a cliche will not save us. What we need is solid ground to stand on. And I think that's what we see in Psalm 46. We see solid foundation of how we respond in trouble. And so if you've been with us over the past five weeks, we've been rolling through Psalms 42 to 49 over the summer. These are the Psalms of the sons of Korah. And in 42 and 43, they start out very low. He's, he's depressed, he's oppressed, he's suffering. And they sort of sequentially work their way towards more and more hope in God. This week, as we look at Psalm 46, we see the psalmist is filled with awe as he stands before God. He looks at God. He looks at God's city. And you can just hear, in, in even as Sarah's reading, you can hear the confidence that we hear about God in the psalmist's voice. There's no longer this uh, fear from 42 uh, of, God, are you even there? Are you even listening to me? Now it's complete faith and trust. So that's, I think that's the main argument then of this psalm. In troubling times, in troubling times, God is worthy of your trust because he will save those who are his. In troubling times, God, will, God is worthy of your trust because he will save those who are his. 
And we're not necessarily going to walk straight through the psalm verse by verse. We're just going to kind of take the themes of the psalm. And I think they fit into three main buckets. And they sort of support that main idea. And the three buckets are God is powerful, God is present, and God will be exalted. So God is powerful beyond all measure. There is no other power that compares. God is present in every trouble, and God will be exalted everywhere. So we'll just walk through those in order, starting with the first reason. God is powerful. He's worthy of your trust because he is powerful. So I think that's the obvious intended effect of the language of the psalm. You, you hear about a God who is unparalleled in power, unrivaled in authority. There is no enemy that can stand before him. It's not an even match. And so we can kind of pile up a lot of those sort of words and adjectives and phrases. And I think they're helpful, but I think what the psalmist does is he helps us not just uh, hear a lot of words, but actually give us visual images of, of what it looks like to understand God's power. So we'll look at four of the ways that the psalm describes God's power. The first of which, coming right in verse one, is that God is our refuge. God is the one who protects his people. He is, uh, the, a refuge is a place of retreat. It's, it's a defensible position. So one pastor used a helpful illustration from the Lord of the Rings series. So the second book, The Two Towers, you've got the, the wicked army of Mordor is advancing onto the land of Rohan. The men of Rohan, they retreat inside of Helm's Deep. So Helm's Deep is a refuge. It's a place that they can be protected from their enemies. They can defend themselves. That's what God, that's what the psalmist is saying God is. He is a defense for his people. And the psalmist has been, he has been attacked by his enemies. He's been uh, pursued and persecuted by his enemies. And at times has struggled to feel the loving presence of God. But now as he's lifted his eyes and he's looked to God, he's rightly understanding who God is. He sees the security and the rest that we have in our loving father. Second aspect, another way that we see God uh, or see God's, uh, boy, see God's power described by the psalmist is his strength. It was also in verse one, it kind of finishes that pair. God is our refuge and our strength. This speaks to how God provides power to his people to continue to endure through troubles. So if a refuge is an external protection, it's, it's the place that we go to feel safe. The strength that he provides to his people is the internal power that we need to endure, to continue to fight. A refuge is the external care, but strength is how God helps us to fight for faith. So this is how God's power is displayed in two of the ways. He, he protects his people from enemies and he strengthens them to overcome them. And, you know, the psalmist, this is a physical battle that he's been in. He's literally had these people pursuing and attacking him. Probably not the case for us. We likely don't have people who are actively pursuing and attacking us, but it's still a reality that we all face in various Ways. So whether it's life or work or relationships or sickness or bills or parenting or, or whatever other thing causes you to, to fear or to falter in your faith, the psalmist is giving us solid ground to stand on. God is your refuge and your strength. 
We can say, God, protect me from sin, keep me from sin, and also give me faith that I might fight when times get hard. All right, so those are the first two descriptors of God's power. The third of them, I've got two more. The third of them is God's power over nature. God exercises complete control over nature in this psalm. We see that right there in verses two and three. He describes this sort of cataclysmic situation. The earth gives way. The mountains are moved in the heart of the sea. Uh, The sea is roaring and foaming and the mountains are trembling and it's swelling. And you see almost an apocalyptic image. This This is the world raging against the created order. And the question then is, should these extraordinary events cause God's people to falter? Of course not. He says, we will not fear these things. It's easy to say we will not fear these things, but he also gives us the grounds on which we can believe that. Why are we able to not fear? I think if you look down to verse six, he gives us the answer. When God utters his voice, the earth melts. God, through just the power of his voice, can melt the earth. He doesn't gather sticks and build a big fire. He doesn't have an earth-melting device. Just the word of God is enough to silence all of the raging of the world. That doesn't come as a surprise to us. If you know the Bible well, you know that he created the world through his word in Genesis 1. God says, let there be and there is. And so we see that God has the power both to create through a word and to decreate. He is utterly powerful above all things. And notice in Genesis 1 and here, that doesn't sound like it's a fatiguing thing for God. It's not, he, this is a hard work for him to melt the earth or to create all things. It's just as simple as uttering his voice. The last descriptor of God's power in this psalm God exercises complete control over the nations. So he's got nature and nations. The first half of verse six says the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. And we see that sort of thing happening all throughout the Old Testament. God's people, Israel, are constantly dealing with wars against neighboring nations. They're they're fighting off and defending themselves. We see this in the New Testament. We see uh, Jesus is attacked and persecuted. The apostles are, the disciples are, the church is. In Acts chapter 4, as the disciples have been uh, released from prison and told not to preach anymore, they pray. They actually quote Psalm 2 when they pray. They say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. See, what they're saying is that there, there have been nations who oppose God's people. There are nations that oppose God and God's people. But what we have in Psalm 46 is confidence that we do not need to live in fear of those nations. Verses 8 and 9 say, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God's power is not rivaled by any nation. If you remember the series back in Genesis, in Genesis 11, God's power wasn't rivaled when they tried to build a tower in Babel to to reach up to the heavens to defend themselves. God's power wasn't rivaled there. 
In Matthew chapter four, when Jesus is out in the wilderness and he's being tempted by Satan, God's power is not overcome there. He overcomes that temptation. And if you look forward in your Bible to Revelation 20, there's this scene of the final battle between the enemies of God and God's people. So you have in Revelation 20, this this, uh, scene of Satan gathering an army, collecting this army from all over the world and circling around the city of God. And there's this sort of suspenseful scene, this buildup of what's going to happen. How will they protect themselves? Revelation chapter 20, verse nine says, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. There was no battle. There's no power. All of the forces of earth stand absolutely no chance against the power of the living God. Even as you read through Revelation 20, it would make a horrible movie. There is no suspense. There is no buildup. There's no like slight defeat and then victory. It's utter domination from God. He wins. So for us, what is overwhelmingly fearful? What is the the thing that's looming that causes you the most concern? And when you measure that fear up, that concern up, that trouble up, do you see how it compares to the God that I just described, the God that the psalmist is describing, who's powerful beyond all measure, who is the greatest source of relief for his people? If you're here and you're in Christ, you don't serve a God who is unable to save Our God is mighty to save from any countless number of dangers and troubles. And not only in the extraordinary circumstances of Psalm 46, but also in everyday circumstances and ordinary circumstances that we face, God is mighty to save. All right, so that's the first reason. We're confident that God is worthy of our trust because he is powerful. The second reason is because God is present. He's present in every trouble. We see that right there in the second half of verse one. God is our refuge and strength and our very present help in trouble. Not only is he powerful, but he's here with us in trouble. And not only is he present, but he's very present. I love that that adjective is thrown in there. He's not just powerful and nearby. We need help over here, but he's kind of close by and he's able to help. No, God is very present. He's looking to help his people and he draws near to them. So when we had our first daughter, it was 2020, it was COVID season. And uh, when our daughter was born, our parents couldn't come up from Georgia to help us, but they helped us a ton. They, they sent us food, they prayed for us, we FaceTime. we talked but they couldn't change diapers and they, they couldn't watch the girls while we tried to eat a meal. That All of the things that we needed help with, they could help with some of the needs, but not all of them. They were present, but not very present. So that's the description that we have of God. He's not just able to help a little bit. No, God is very, very present in our troubles. We aren't hoping that he can get a little bit more time off to come and help. He is there with us every moment to help us. And the psalmist gives us a, a picture of what that looks like in verses four and five. He says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So back in verse two, we had the sea that was tumultuous and raging. 
But here in the city of God, there is a peaceful river that's bringing gladness to the city, to God's people. And at face value, that's encouraging, but it's actually probably a weirder statement than it even seems. See, God's city is Jerusalem. That's where the temple was built by King Solomon. That's where uh, Abraham sacrificed the ram in the place of Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah. The, The temple is built there. That's where we go to meet with God. That's God's city. But if you look on a Google map search, there is no river in Jerusalem. The Jordan River is miles east of it. So the river then can't be referring to Jerusalem as it is now. What what the psalmist is pointing us forward to is the new Jerusalem, the one that Isaiah 65 talks about, a new heavens and a new earth. That is where we're trying to look, the place that God's people will eventually come and live with him in perfect peace forever. That is the holy habitation of the most high God. And that's, that's the encouragement that we have that God is present, that his presence gives uh, all of life and all of this world stability, and that there's a greater hope even than we have now to look forward to, that we will dwell in God's city where there will be no more need for deliverance because we will be completely at peace. And we don't even just look to a, a place, right? We're not looking to Jerusalem for our deliverance. We look now to a person, to to Christ himself who has come, who has been our refuge and strength, who is our present help in trouble. It's because of Christ that we can be glad when troubles come. We can be joyful when trials and adversities come across our way. And that doesn't mean joyful like as I'm getting punched in the face, I've got a big smile on. That means joyful like I can get up in the morning and I can put one foot in front of the other and continue to press on because I'm confident that God will make all things that are wrong right. The mountains move, the kingdoms totter. God's people who are secure in God's son will not be moved. And notice that this doesn't mean that Christians should expect that there will be no trouble in this life. Of course, that's not true. God is our help in trouble. Trouble is assumed. It's a necessary part of life in a sinful world. And our confidence isn't knowing that there won't be trouble. Our confidence is knowing that God is near to us when trouble has come and when he's promised to help us. So if you're here this morning and Your life feels like it's a season of troubles, like those looming fears are looming very closely to you. Know that you're not alone. God is present in the trouble and God will deliver you. But I do want to notice that it's not deliverance on our timelines. Look at the second half of verse five. God will help her when morning dawns. See, that phrase is used very intentionally. The the original readers of this psalm, their minds immediately would have gone back to Exodus, to the the deliverance of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They walk up to the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts. They walk through the sea on dry ground. They get across to the other side. They look back and Egypt is pursuing them. The, The warriors, the horses are pursuing them. So God says Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. And then Exodus chapter 14, verse 27 says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea 
The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. It's that imagery of a sunrise, of the morning coming, is an image all throughout Scripture to talk and to provide hope for God's people, that God will bring the dawn. There is no night for, which the, for the Christian that God will not bring a morning. Sunrise will come. Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That joy comes because it's God who brings it. Your trouble isn't meaningless. It's not nothing. Your trouble is to build this weight of glory to prepare you to be with him. It refines us and it sharpens us, but it also is showing our dependence upon him. And it's an opportunity for us to give glory to him. That is the last of our points. So why is God worthy of our trust? Why do I think ultimately he will save his people? Because God will be exalted. So look down at verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. So in this Psalm so far, we've seen uh, raging of nature. We've seen raging of nations. Then in verse eight, the psalmist issues an invitation. He says, come and see, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. I think that's sort of a double purpose with that statement. It's both a comfort to God's people. Come and see what God has done. I think it's a warning to the opponents of God. Come and see what God has done. Then in verse nine, we see that there is no enemy that can match him. He will make every war cease. So if you are in opposition against God, this is your warning to lay down the weapons now. You will not overcome him. And then in verse 10, there's the second invitation. Be still and know that I am God. Do you notice that this is one verse that stands out different than every other verse in the psalm? Every other verse is the psalmist describing what God has done, the things that he will do, the events around him, but not verse 10. Verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. God is now the speaker. He, He is taking up and he's inviting his people. He's inviting the raging nations to stand before the throne. But remember what verse six said, when God utters his voice, the earth melts, which means that this invitation here, God speaking and inviting us is a warning. If God is speaking here and the earth has not melted, that does not mean that it will not. His word is sure. We have complete confidence that in God's timing, there will be a day when God does wipe away this earth, those who oppose him, and, and to be clear, opposing doesn't just mean like actively antagonistic. Opposing God is uh, ambivalence. Opposing God is, I'll deal with that later. God is saying, all who stand against me are warned. And while I do think this is a warning to those who are against God, I, I think even more so, this is a sweet comfort to God's people. Be still and know that he is God. Whether you're in the midst of a season of suffering or a season of success, whether this is a a time where you're kind of in a harvest feast or you're in fallow ground, God is God 
and you are not. He's saying, stop letting the distractions and the discouragements get in the way of recognizing who I am and who you are. Beloved, we are not powerful beyond all measure. We are not present in every trouble. And even if we were present in everybody else's trouble, we would not be able to deliver them. But God can save you. We know that this is exactly why he has sent his son, Jesus. When God speaks, he could melt the earth. But when he speaks to his people, he melts the hearts of stone. He gives a heart of flesh. He breathes new life into us and he calls us to come and rest in him. We no longer have any need to fear his presence. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what God has done in sending Jesus is he has secured the forgiveness of our sins. He's given us confidence. We can walk and we can stand before him as people who are forgiven, people who are blameless. So when you stand before God and we come before him, he will look at us and see the sinless perfection of Christ covering us. There's not any tinge of sin that will be left when God looks at us. If you are hidden in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, that is how God sees you. And so that should give us humility. We should respond to God's grace with humility, but we also ought to respond by glorifying and exalting the God who has done this for us. Our lives should be signposts that point the world to the one who is the refuge of their souls. That's what God says. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I think he's calling us to worship him. He's saying, come and see and hear and know me and exalt me. That's, that's what we're doing here right now. That's why we listen to his word. That's why we sing and praise him. That's why we pray together. That's why we give. That's why we celebrate the table. All of this is us in our small little part of the world seeking to exalt God here. But there's also an evangelistic thrust to this. He says he'll be exalted among the nations and among the earth and all the earth. So if that's true, then that means that we are part of that plan. God has called us to be his ambassadors. So those who are here that are Christians, he's saying to live in a way that is authentically Christian, to represent Christ to the world so that people would know the refuge of their souls. He's calling us to be part of his name being exalted. And that's not just here. I think it is certainly in our families and our workplaces, whatever relationships and clubs we're part of. But I think he's also talking about bringing God to the nations. I think there's a missions mindset to this verse. We pray for this regularly as elders and staff and as a church that we would raise up people to go to the nations. That's why we pray for different uh, unreached people groups on Sunday mornings is because we want to see God's name exalted. We're praying even for some in this church now that they would sense this uh, calling to go and preach the gospel to all nations. So if you've ever felt a tug towards missions, or maybe you haven't ever felt a tug towards missions, we invite you to pray. Ask God, God, do you want to use me in this way to bring the gospel to the nations? There's not 
Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. There's not a reason for us to stay when the, the gospel needs to be brought to the world. And God has promised that he will be exalted, that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that bow before him and praise him. Every nation all over the earth, God will be exalted. God is powerful. God is present. God will be exalted. And I want to conclude where the psalmist concludes. So if you notice both in verses 7 and verses 11, there's a refrain that we get repeated twice. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. If you've been at Christ's covenant uh, or any even sort of similar church for any amount of time, you've likely heard the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That hymn was written by Martin Luther sometime in the 1520s, and it's based on this psalm. It's rooted in Psalm 46. Uh, Luther had been persecuted, had been chased all around Europe by the Roman Catholic Church and by others who opposed him. He likely wrote this song, uh, that, that hymn while he was uh, sort of witnessing the Black Death, the bubonic plague spreading across Europe. He's, he's trying to find comfort for his own soul, but also to provide a way to, to see comfort in the church and those around him. So he wrote a mighty fortress based on Psalm 46. And he's calling the church to stand steadfast because we are rooted in God. God is not just a good ruler. God is not just a good protector. God is a mighty fortress. And the word fortress there actually sort of carries an intensified language than just a refuge. So a fortress biblically is a refuge that's at an inaccessible height. So it's not just Helm's Deep, but it's a place that God's enemies can't even reach up to. And that's what God is for us. He is a fortress. Luther says that he is the bulwark never failing. There is no fear that there will be at some point that God will slip and fall. God will never fail. We can run to him. So in this life, you will have trouble. That's a promise that the world will give you. It's a promise that comes straight from Jesus. But if you've trusted in Christ, if you know God is your refuge and strength and that he's present in trouble and that he's a fortress, then you can have confidence that morning will dawn and that your salvation is secure already in him, that there will be deliverance. We can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. So we'll take just a moment to consider the the glory of God, his power, his presence, that he will be exalted. Consider how that matters for you and pray that God would reveal himself to you in a way that would give you steadfastness in trial. And I'll pray for us in a moment. Father, we want to be people who have so much confidence in you that we speak like the psalmist speaks. That when troubles come and we are filled with fear, and trembling, that we can look to you and know that you are the God who is immovable and unrivaled. Let those things give us hope and strength when the world around us is troubled. 
And Father, we, we pray that you would help us to be people who would like to be partnering with you and exalting your name. We want to exalt you in our lives. We want to exalt you in our families, in our workplaces. We want to see your name exalted in the world. We trust that that is what will happen. We pray that you would give us joy in doing this work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.